The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Good morning, Long Island, and welcome to DDI on Autism on 103.9 FM. Keeping an eye on autism and giving a voice to its Long Island community, I'm your host, Dr. Michael Holmes, and again, so glad that you can join us this morning as we share and explore all relevant issues related to autism spectrum disorder. My guest this morning is Dr. Georgina Lynch. Dr. Lynch currently works at the Department of Speech and Hearing Sciences, Washington State University College of Medicine in Pediatrics, Allied Health Science, and Neuroscience. Her current project is Pupillary Metric Biomarker Research. Uh, The work involves the use of static and handheld technology to assess the pupillary light reflex in typically developing children and those with ASD with an aim of developing early biomarkers to guide and inform screening practices by healthcare providers. Uh, Dr. Lynch, that's a bit of a a mouthful. So (laughs) (laughs) if you don't mind, Tell everybody what I'm talking about. (laughs) You bet. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. I am delighted to be here today to have this conversation. Yes, so handheld technology and pupillometry for augmenting screening for autism spectrum disorder and looking at early biomarkers. Essentially, what our work centers around is measuring the pupillary changes that occur when we introduce light to the eye and looking at this physiologic response that differs in young children with autism in comparison to typical development. And so we've spent quite a a number of years now studying how those differences look in older kids, younger kids, typical development and children with ASD. Our goal is that we can introduce a potential technique that helps medical providers look at typical from atypical neural development in a non-invasive way. Sure. And at this early juncture, uh, Dr. Lynch, what kind of observations are, are, are there? Yeah. So we have tested a number of kids between the ages of 6 and 17 years old and published a paper on that recently in Neurological Sciences. We've also run studies now in children two to four, where we're looking at characterizing that pupillary response. And in the older kids, what we see is we see this constriction difference in that the fight or flight responding that your body does automatically when you're introduced with a change in your environment, it might make you jump and you suddenly kick into gear. Well, the pupillary light reflex does something similar here. In these older kids, what it does is it causes them to demonstrate sympathetic activity that is different. The eye will constrict pretty rapidly and return to baseline or coming back to where it started is very slow. We tend to see most people will have this response within a second for each part of that pupillary response. In kids with autism, it's delayed. It's difficult for their body to come back into homeostasis or back into that balanced uh, state upon removal of those environmental conditions such as the light. When we look at it in younger children, however, it's slightly different. We are noticing some potential age effects here that really speak to this hyperarousal that you may see in ASD. 
And what we tend to see is accelerated constriction, but again, followed by either an absent return to baseline or significantly reduced. And so what happens is we're bodies constantly adapting and changing to these environmental kinds of factors. And with the PLR, the pupillary light reflex, it's a very sensitive measure for how your body regulates and, and kind of comes back into that calm state. Essentially, our eyes do that all day long, all day in response to various things, whether we're excited about something, whether we're cognitively taxed and thinking about something, that pupil is a corollary to activity in your brainstem and norepinephrine that is released throughout the cortex. Well, what happens is in the little ones, they tend to be hyper-aroused where that constriction is accelerated in comparison to typical development. And so you can see very readily those changes just in that PLR response that maps onto what we get in behavioral testing. All of these kids were confirmed with the gold standard behavioral tool, the ADOS. And, and we looked at uh, testing this and seeing whether there was a correlation between those who were diagnosed with ASD based on ADOS testing and those who were deemed typically developing and did not meet any criteria for autism. And these pupil metrics predicted the likelihood of which diagnostic category you would fall under based on those time thresholds I'm talking about. Interesting. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the methodology that was utilized? How, how did this look? What were, the, what were, the, um, were the number of subjects and yeah, how was it outlined? Yeah, so in the first cohort I described, which was the older children, we had 36 children with autism and 24 typically developing. And essentially uh, what we were doing is we were taking handheld, what we call monocular pupillometry. So that's a handheld device that cups up to the eye, shines a light into the eye and immediately records the response. And so some of these studies in the past have been done with what's called binocular eye tracking. These are automated systems at uh, computer monitor screens that flash light and, and records it post hoc. What we did is we wanted to see whether this handheld technology could produce similar results, but also identify the kids with ASD. So we tested the children in what are called dark adapted conditions. And it's where the, the ambient lighting is dropped to about one lux. So it's the equivalent of um, a little background light, a computer monitor shining in the background and delivered this eye test within, it takes about three to five minutes to do. We did four trials per eye and compared right and left response. And we pulled all of those measurements together between groups and compared those differences. The statistical process to this, which is more of the uh, scientific side of it in terms of the methodology, is that we used what's called receiver operating characteristic analysis. It's called ROC analysis. And that's considered one of the, the current gold standards around medical testing viability and, and its sensitivity and specificity. And with ROC analysis, what it did is it demonstrated that this kind of approach in terms of the biometric of the PLR response was at 74% sensitivity for identifying from atypical development. Our goal wasn't to... Uh, our goal, I guess I should say it this way, and I like to stress this. 
the use of this technology isn't to diagnose autism. It's to really look at, are we on a deviant path of atypical neurodevelopment that differentiates from typical development? We know pediatricians are on the front line of conducting autism screening and that those referrals primarily are coming from pediatricians. And when we look at the subjective nature of current approaches, our goal is to provide additional objective information to that healthcare provider to consider whether we have atypical neurodevelopment happening. So the idea, I, I think, is to identify these early indicators of autism using this particular methodology and this technology. What I'm curious about, and maybe the listeners as well, is whether while you're doing this, are you correlating this with other known early bio, biometric indicators? Is there an effort to kind of see, does this line up with what's currently being done? Yes, and those are, those are essentially the next steps. What we've got right now going is a multi-site study across uh, three autism centers. And in that study, what we're looking at is some of these not only behavioral markers, but also biomarkers. And so when we look at things like um, these are a little bit more um, gross biomarker in nature, I guess, since there's no real one existing biomarker for autism in terms of blood tests or genetics. These are things like seizure disorder. Um, do we also have gastrointestinal disturbance? Do we also have report of immunological concern or allergy concern as well? And so we're looking at more correlating it to a profile of physical medical condition paired with a profile of performance on the current behavioral gold standard tool. So a lot of these studies look at longitudinal outcome and, and they'll look at maybe a sibling-based study where the sibling, you know, puts this child in a high-risk category because we have a family history of autism and we test all of this and project out. In our study, what we're trying to do, although it's cross-sectional, is we're trying to demonstrate that when that diagnosis has been given and it's been given by current um, behavioral tools that show a high degree of sensitivity specificity, not map it onto another screener, but map it onto the actual evaluation outcome. Mm -hmm. Does this screener predict where that child would fall? And so what we see is that that is a good model for looking at whether an augmented objective metric can be mapped onto our current use of gold standard evaluation metrics that are behavioral in nature. So I think to continue using it as part of a larger battery as one more but very early indicator. Correct. We're moving towards a break. Uh, stay with us. We're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Lynch around early biometric indicators of autism. DDI on autism. Stay with us. Welcome back, Long Island. You're listening to DDI on Autism on 103.9 FM, keeping an eye on autism and giving a voice to its Long Island community. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Lomas. Continue my conversation with Dr. Georgina Lynch 
about biometrics or research around how to identify new biometrics to identify autism in kids and really, really young kids uh, at that. Uh, you know, but Dr. Lynch, very briefly during the break, we were able to talk a little bit, even at this early juncture, around what the implications of this research might be, and also what the chronology of research in general around the issue has been. Uh, maybe we can speak to that as a, as a jumping off point. Sure, absolutely. So what we know is that if we're able to identify some sort of objective physical marker that can map on to potential outcome in terms of diagnosis, but we're able to do this in young children with an eye toward getting access to intervention. The implication is quite likely that the age of diagnosis may be reduced and access to additional early intervention increases. So the current age of diagnosis on average is four and a half years old in the United States. And we know that there's a critical window of opportunity in which early intervention makes a difference for the long-term outcome for, for children with autism. If the average age is four and a half, we're missing a lot, almost two and a half years or so of intervention that could make a difference. So that's, you know, looking to the future in terms of what we hope this research and technology will support. In terms of the chronology of getting here and why we're exploring it, we know that the visual pathway in autism is deviant. And when I say deviant, I don't mean in a bad way. I mean, it's different. Mm -hmm. And within autism, we know that there are challenges with joint attention, imitation, all those early uh, behavioral conditions dependent on the visual system for developing speech and language. And so by better understanding how the visual pathway differs in autism, that science informs both how we conduct intervention and then also its use as a potential physical marker in the form of the pupillary light reflex and the pupillary system. There are other researchers who've conducted some work in this area. Back in 2009, University of Missouri was one of the first groups to look at the PLR, and we've really built upon um, the the paradigm for examining the PLR in relation to typical development and other disorders. What's different here, however, is we're looking at this in terms of a precise measurement that maps onto the outcome of diagnosis. And so the goal is that if we can train clinicians to elicit these PLRs, within a clinical environment, that this could be done as simply as taking blood pressure, listening to a heartbeat, that definitely gets it out of the lab and into the hands of the people who would be able to really um, benefit most from it. So as recently as 10 to 15 years ago, eye tracking, pupillometry, this technology was used in a very cumbersome manner. We're now exploring its use in a way that could be clinically relevant. The pathway to that, obviously, there's still a lot of work to do. Uh, this requires, you know, first it's been validated here in the scientific community, which was our number one goal is to really get this out in peer-reviewed journals and start thinking about it in terms of the science. The second is field testing it with clinicians, with medical teams. You know, we were able to elicit these things in the lab, but what could providers do? And moreover, could we do it in young children? What we're beginning to see is that we're seeing this being done pretty effectively by the clinical teams that we've trained. And so that's been, I think, the exciting part is the partnership with the medical community to 
get their feedback on its use in clinical practice? And pediatricians, do they see this as beneficial? Uh, the goal is not to do away with any of the current tools that are being used, rather it's to augment and supplement in order to allow a provider to have confidence in the decision they're making. Parent checklists are sometimes lengthy. The current screener uh, takes about 20 to 30 minutes to do, and well-child exams are really only about 20 minutes long. <laughs> Moreover, we find pediatricians don't all use the published tools that we have available. So our goal is simply to continue to examine this as a potential use toward bolstering screening practices. You know, I think you may have just seamlessly leaned into a question that I find myself thinking about, you know, giving the almost exponential uh, stats around prevalence uh, of autism. Uh, I find myself wondering whether pupillary response is a continual and a range of, of normalcy or what, what may we may call neurotypical response, and or is and is there some threshold that would have to be crossed before we would even consider uh, um, someone as having autism? Now, because you did when you when we first started talking, you talked about what I I think you spoke a little bit to what the normal normal uh, time uh, uh, time would be. I'm just wondering at what point do we ascribe a label, or do we even do that? But what does this what, what does that mean? Yeah, I love this question because, you know, we have lived and breathed pupillary metrics and biostatistics related to this um, since the pilot work I started back in 2014. And so I always educate people to say this is so much more than just looking at constriction dilation. <laughs> you know, um, it, it's a matter of understanding the pupillary response, as you've indicated, around other issues. What does a PLR look like when there's been a concussion, a head injury, um, toxicity, all of these other things that also give you indicators of atypical PLR? Part of what we're looking at is, um, A, you don't want to cause con undue concern if that's not the case, but you also don't want to miss kids who are, quite frankly, being missed currently because of not having maybe extreme um, con forms of the condition, right? And so they're medicated, ADHD, maybe co-occurrence ADHD is with it, but the ASD diagnosis comes much later because they maybe got ADHD diagnosis first. So part of what we're doing is we're characterizing it relative to other conditions. It's really important that we're looking for uh, that the people responds with equal size in terms of accommodation. That is a hallmark kind of um, picture we've seen in autism time and time again across the age span. It's important to note that this is not like in a traumatic brain injury where the pupils respond in different sizes and ways. That is a hallmark picture of a PLR when there's been a concussion or some other form of head injury that we have replicated over and over again that we do not see in autism. Second is it's important to understand that as early as about, oh, two to three months, you're going to see a pretty robust response in the pupillary light reflex. Now, we're not proposing that we consider this in eight or nine month olds. That would be nice if it could be that sensitive, but it's firmly believed and documented that by 18 to 24 months of age, it's a robust measurement of, of the central nervous system in terms of that reflex itself. 
So our goal is not to say you have autism and your risk is very high based on your PLR. It's more that based on this pupillary light reflex response, we're seeing something that's atypical from typical development. And we will show you the PLR metric growth curves that indicate what is typical. So part of the work that we're doing is not only testing it in kids, but documenting those comparative growth curves that we're starting to see. And so what that means is mapping those trajectories month by month with how that PLR changes in typical development and in autism spectrum disorder. So much like we might look at a growth curve for height and weight, it's a growth curve for PLR timestamps relative to age and sex that matter in terms of what we expect to see that response to be. And that takes time for sure. And lots of kids. <laughs> well, that's actually very, very helpful because it allows me to at least consider that what this could, could show is just, an, not just, essentially an atypical response that doesn't necessarily require treatment, at least not yet, because we're not really labeling it any one thing. It could be autism, as you said, it could be a, a trauma, brain trauma, it could be emotional trauma, uh, right, right, the, the wide range of possible right. neurological experiences. So what I'm walking away with, at least, at least right now, is this idea that this gives us something to look at. And that interpretation of that is forthcoming. Is, is, would you agree with that? I would agree with that 100%. And the analogy that I use is much like this. Your blood pressure is an indicator of your overall cardiovascular health, but it doesn't tell the whole story. So if there is concern and those numbers are elevated, we're going to do more. Just as that's an indicator of cardiovascular health, your PLR essentially is an indicator of your neurodevelopmental health. It's just another corollary to understanding when things are on par, or when they may be different. And, and we're excited about it in thinking about it in that way, not in being a silver bullet by any means. <laughs> I just have to say, Dr. Lynch, this is a very rich conversation and way too much for one show. I have, must ask you to come back. So if that's, if that's okay, I'd like to do a part two with you next week. Oh, it would be my pleasure. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to DDI on Autism. My guest has been Dr. Lynch. Be sure to come back next week. Much, much to be continued. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.